0: We're going to be in the book of Jeremiah, and I have, I printed out, I debated whether or not to print out all the verses that we're going to be tackling here tonight in the packet in front of you, so I did, and I'm not sure if I'm going to do it again, but I did it at least this one time, because there's a lot of verses. Jeremiah is a massive book. It's, uh, there's a lot in it, and there's no way that we could possibly tackle every verse in it. And it, what was frustrating for me as I was preparing this is going, well, I'm going to skip over that part. And I'm like, well, why am I skipping over that part? You know, and it's like, I was trying to justify putting everything in, and you just can't do that unless you're just going to go verse by verse through Jeremiah. So um, so the point is, there's a lot of verses in here. We're not going to read all of them. They've all been provided, but we're really, uh, I, I'm trying to keep the goal in front of us um, without getting too distracted in some of, these, some of these other topics. Really what we're wanting to do is, go as we go through the prophets, we, we've been, for some time now, been going through the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament story. And so we, we initially started with kind of a systematic theology, but then we got to a point in this theology where the story of Scripture was actually really necessary, and so we broke from that and started in Genesis and just sort of have gone through now and and we got through uh, all the way up to Israel going into exile in um, in Babylon in at the end of Second Kings, and and then we're, now we were like, well, we got to go through the prophets and we got to help kind of make sense of the prophets. And after this, we're going to talk about post-exile stuff, prophets that that occur post-exile, and then also there's a whole bunch of Jewish history that happens after the exile before Jesus that helps make sense of the New Testament before we get to the New Testament. So, that's kind of the trajectory of where we're going, but in the process we get to the prophets, and as far as I'm concerned, when I talk with Christians in churches, the prophets are invariably the hardest for people to understand. And when you go into them, there's, first of all, there is a lot of debate just amongst Christians over what this verse means or what that verse means or what, what is being said here and how does it apply. And, and then we get to the whole question of like, well, taking the prophet as we've read it and now taking it into a New Testament context and applying it to us, the Christian, now. When you read the prophets, what you find is so much of it is highly contextual. Meaning he's talking to a person or a group of people that don't exist anymore. And, you know, a, a, a group of priests or something like that, that that are not there anymore. And he's saying something specific to them that's going to happen. And so then you've got to go, well, wh- what does that mean? And then how do I read that as a New Testament Christian? It's almost like I'm reading somebody else's mail and trying to apply it to myself, right? So how do I do that? And, and the answer is you can, but we just need to do it in the right way. And so our goal really through the prophet is to understand first the context. And I think if we understand the context that these prophecies occur in, it helps us to make sense of the passages themselves. Because when you read them, they seem kind of out there like what on earth is going on here this is about a place I've never even heard of before and a person I don't know and so what, it, what is happening so if you we understand a little bit of the context behind the writing of the prophet then it helps us understand the actual words that are there but then we want to take it to the next step and go well now what does this mean in a New Testament setting we're on this side of the cross now surely that changed a whole bunch of things and so once we figure that out, then we can actually apply it to where we are now on this side of the cross. So we've got to go through those steps. And so anytime I'm skipping over something in Jeremiah, it's not that it's insignificant. Believe me, I'm going to try to go as much through the sections as I possibly can. But anytime I'm skipping over, it, it's more of saying let, let's, we want to kind of move along to try to help us understand not only the context, but then how this applies. So... Um, with that in mind, let's talk about the background just briefly. Um, Jeremiah just—he introduces himself right out of the gate, and and what you'll find about Jeremiah as you read this book is that he is very meticulous about dates, which is fantastic for somebody that's a historian or something that's reading this. They're like, okay, great, this is awesome. He introduces himself and he identifies years and dates and things like that, which is really helpful. But what we find out about Jeremiah right out of the gate in verses 1 and 2 is that he is sort of, uh, he fills sort of a dual role in Israel. Uh, He is a priest and he is that by birth. And then he is also called to be a prophet. So he gets that by divine call. That's not something you choose or sign up for necessarily, that is something that the Lord calls you to. So he, he is, by birth order, he is a priest, but then he is also called to be a prophet, which not every priest is a prophet, uh, but Jeremiah happens to be one. We can read that in Jeremiah 1, 1 and 2. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So he, he places it, Right when he begins to get his call, right in the 13th year of, of Josiah. So he is, uh, Jeremiah's ministry began. No, I think I'm, I skipped, didn't I? Yep, there he goes. Jeremiah's ministry began in the 13th year of Josiah, which is precisely in 627, and it extends all the way to the end of the southern kingdom in 586, and maybe even beyond. Uh, we don't know how long after that it ended, but it, it is clearly up through the time when, when uh, Judah is hauled off into captivity in Babylon, which is in 586. Jeremiah is still there. And so it's you know, some, probably sometime after that that his ministry, reign, or ministry ended. We don't know when. Um, but what we do know is just based on the text of his prophecy, most of it is occurring after Josiah's reign because so much about what he's prophesying about happened clearly after Josiah's reforms have all gone, Josiah's dead, his wicked sons have taken on the throne, and they're, they're leading back into wickedness. And so it's clear that though he began his ministry sometime in the middle of Josiah's reign, most of what we got in the writing is, is going to be a lot after that because they've turned completely away from Josiah. Look at one three. It also it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the sons of Josiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So his ministry is going right up to the end uh, there, and we know that we don't have any really outside of Lamentations. We don't really have much of, as far as writings after that, but uh, there's no telling how long he was. A minister, or how long he was alive. Um, he was called to speak uh, of the uprooting and destruction of nations, including Judah and their eventual rebuilding and replanting. Um, the chosen people had to be told that their sins would incur the chastisement of Yahweh, a message they would not want to hear, but Jeremiah the messenger would be protected from any violent reaction on their part. It's important to remember that a key to Jeremiah's ministry is that he was given the unfortunate task of talking to people that did not want to listen to him. And so he had, I mean, as far as fruit of his ministry, he didn't really have much. Um, Most of what he was called to do was basically go to this people who are not going to listen to you and they're going to beat you, basically. Basically. So, how do you like that? You think you got it bad? I mean, Jeremiah had it bad, all right? And he did it faithfully. L- listen to what it says here in, in Jeremiah 1, 4-10. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I, you might say he was human. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold... I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah has been given this task of prophesying to kingdoms, and his words, because they are the very words of God that God has put in there, his words are going to carry a lot of weight. Not because they're Jeremiah's, but because they're God's words. And those words are going to build up and tear down kingdoms. I mean, literally nations are going to rise and fall based on what Jeremiah is going to tell them. And so what I want to do as we know, we understand the calling of Jeremiah. Let's also understand what's happening in the book. Remember, he's at the end of Judah's tenure, right? Judah has been, uh, has watched their brothers to the north be hauled off into captivity into Assyria And now they're on the precipice, whether they know it or not, they are on the precipice of absolute collapse. Babylon's going to walk in in 605 all the way to 586 and in three invasions, take them off bit by bit. Now, here's part of Jeremiah's ministry you've got to keep in your mind. He's not only going to prophesy things that they're not going to want to hear. He's going to prophesy, and he's the only one who's giving the minority report, everyone else is saying, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Everyone else is preaching peace when there is no peace. And Jeremiah is the only one coming along going, they're not telling you the truth. That's the context, right? That he's he's coming in. So, in Jeremiah's prophecy, and his whole, if you want to call this a book or a letter, or whatever it is, you, you, the whole time, or at least the first half of the book, is Jeremiah and the Lord conversing back and forth, and, and Jeremiah really lamenting the prophecy that he's being given, and he's having to tell this to people, and then he's going back to the Lord going, are you sure this has to be the case? Are you, are you sure this is it? Okay, is there not another way we can do this? And so it's a constant back and forth. And it is very difficult as you read the prophecy to track, keep track of who's speaking. A lot of times he says, the Lord said, and then all of a sudden Jeremiah starts speaking and then it goes back to the Lord again. And so you just, it's hard, all right? So just know that as you you read it. But we're gonna go through this a little bit and just, we wanna track what's happening. So in the first chapter, of Jeremiah, after the verses that we've read, starting in verse 11, he is given a mission, essentially. And I want you to, let, let's kind of identify what this mission really is. Um, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, For I am watching over my word to perform it. Anybody got a clue as to what that means? Why does God show him an almond branch? And then he says, that's an almond branch. And he says, you're right. I am watching over my word to perform it. The word almond branch is a word in Hebrew... Most all Hebrew words have three consonants, and that's about it, all right? No vowels, actually. We added vowels later just so we knew how to pronounce it. They got three consonants. So when you look at a word with three consonants, how many, how many other Hebrew words do you think have those same three consonants? Tons. This is what makes Hebrew so hard is you get on your test, all right, and, and you got the, the three consonants there, and you're like, I know four words that have those same consonants. And there's probably 25 more, right? Well, the word for almond branch, those three consonants are also the same three consonants for watching, all right? So he says, What do you see? And he says the word for almond branch. And God says, Yes, I am watching. It's an illustration. What is it an illustration for? Anybody? What does it illustrate for Jeremiah? Okay, that he's with him. What is what is this? I'm watching what is he watching over? Say again, He's not watching over Jeremiah. He's watching over what? His word. So what is he saying to Jeremiah? Regardless of how weird you think that might be. What is he saying to Jeremiah? Yes, that what I say is going to happen. Right. What I'm telling you is going to happen. Illustration number one. So this is the calling of Jeremiah. All right. I'm watching over my word to perform it. All right. The word of the Lord came to me a second time. This is the second time vision that now Jeremiah sees, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. What you'll find in the prophets is the Lord is a big fan of illustrations. All right. A big fan of object lessons. Okay. I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, so remember this, it's facing away from the north. It's a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come, and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. What does the boiling pot illustrate? What is it? Who is it? Not Assyria. Who is it? It's another nation. We don't find out yet the name. What is it? Babylon. They, and which direction are they going to come from? They're going to come from the north. It's a boiling pot, and it's about to be poured out on the nation. And that's going to be judgment. It's going to scald the nation, essentially. Okay, So he gives that second illustration. Is, so first illustration is, my word is going to take place. Second illustration, judgment is coming. All right, what do we get now? But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that i command you do not be dismayed by them lest i dismay you before them and i behold and i behold i make you this day a fortified city an iron pillar a, and bronze walls against the whole land against the kings of judah its officials its priests and the people of the land They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. What is his promise now? So the first is everything that I say is going to come come true. Second, there's judgment coming from the north. We know that's Babylon, though he doesn't know that just yet. All right? What's the third thing God is saying to him? I got you covered. I am with you to deliver you. He knows. actually from this day that he's going to be prophesying against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail. They they will want to kill you. So your mission, whether you want to accept it or not, this is not mission impossible, this is your mission, whether you want to accept it or not, is to walk into the White House and they're going to want to arrest you for walking in, but they're not going to prevail. And you're going to walk into the Oval Office and you're going to open the door. And the President of the United States is going to be sitting right there and you're going to tell him everything that I'm telling you to tell him. How would you like that as your ministry? Everybody wants to hear a word from the Lord, right? Everybody would love for the Lord to just speak to them, right? Right? Unless he comes and says this. Right? And then it's, okay, that's a whole different ball game. But the security is, I'm going to protect you. So, Jeremiah, you're going to have to trust that because if you don't do everything that I command you, what's going to happen? Do not be dismayed, lest I dismay you before them. I'm going to, I'll embarrass you in front of everybody if you don't. All right? So, well, there you go. That's a... So we're we're understanding Jeremiah's message, we're understanding his calling, so let's go into the prophecy. We're going to try to go through most of the first 25 chapters. At the outset of the book of Jeremiah, he receives three visions. The first vision assures him of certain fulfillment of God's word through him. The second vision indicates the source of God's coming judgment, Babylon from the north. The final vision anticipates both his role and reception in these events. He's not going to be well-received. As we go through these, let's let's take a look at what the content of this prophecy really is. He's going to introduce a whole lot of things, and he's going to introduce something that we're going to be very familiar with in the New Testament. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth your love what is it as a bride how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown israel was holy to the lord the first fruits of the harvest of his harvest all who ate of it incurred guilt disaster came upon them declares the lord so he introduces this concept here of Israel as a bride. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. So he, what, what is this part right here? I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. What is that? Yeah. Exodus, yeah. Del- deliverance from slavery. I redeemed you. But you said, what did they say? Forget it, I will not serve. Remember Moses said, I, I, I'm freeing them so that they may go out and serve the Lord. And, and, and they, they're getting out there and they're going, thanks for breaking us out of jail, but we're not going to serve you. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. What did he introduce them as previously? They were a bride. Problem, they have become a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, uh, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned uh, degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Is he happy? He's not happy. How can you say, I am not unclean. I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley know what you have done a restless young camel running here and there a wild donkey used to the used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind who can restrain her lust none who seek her need weary themselves in her mouth they they will find her in her month they will find her sorry keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst but you said it is hopeless for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. What does he compare them to? A young camel, a wild donkey in heat. They're whores. What does that mean? What does that mean they've done? Which means what? Yeah. They've pursued other gods. That's what he means. You, you, you. Uh, I, I was the one that redeemed you, and you went and sought other gods. Come on. For cross to the, uh, for cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar, and examine with care, see if there is, has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? Think about that for just a second. There is, he's saying, there isn't another nation out there who's done what you've done. You have literally changed your gods. No nation does that. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And, Hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold, can hold no water. Not only have they turned from me, but they have sought out things that cannot hold. They've sought out gods that can't speak. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins, without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanes Taffin, Taffin, have sh- shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He was led you, when He led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt and drink the wa- to drink the waters of the Nile? Are they literally drinking the waters of the Nile? No, they're going to, is, to Egypt for what reason? What is it? The, why, why are they going back to Egypt? And, and what now do you gain by going to Egypt? Yeah, so we know Babylon is coming, and here, here's, the, here's the reality that's going on right now in Jeremiah's day as he's prophesying this. Israel, or Judah, is being used as like a political football going back and forth between Egypt and Babylon, right? Babylon, they know, is threatening, and so they're running to Egypt for refuge. And that's going to happen in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's going to tell them, don't go to Egypt. But they're, they're going to want to go to Egypt. And so the question is, wh- what do you gain by going to Egypt to seek rescue there? So the drinking the waters of the Nile is like, is like finding refuge there in, in Egypt, what are you going there for? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to say, forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. What is the pro- Why is it that they have hewed out cisterns and run from the fountain of living waters? Why have they done that? That's right. He says, the fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. So the first series of prophecies against Judah established the nation as formerly a bride of Yahweh who has turned to prostitution, leaving Yahweh perplexed by her insanity. He's literally going, what in the world? Why would you do that? Makes absolutely no sense why you would turn to other gods when I'm the one that has saved you. L- let's keep going. And now we get into chapter 4. Um, he says, For, This is verse 26 to 28. Five, sorry, chapter 5, 26 to 28. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap, they catch men. Like a cage full of birds their houses are full of deceit therefore they have become great and rich they have grown fat and sleek they know no bounds in deeds of evil they judge not justice judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper and they do not defend the rights of the needy So he's going into what are they guilty for? For what reason is Judah being hauled off into captivity? And this is reason number one. What is it that he's saying here? That is reason number one. He says it's wicked men. Now these are men of Judah. Wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men. Like a cage full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless. Who are these men? Who are they? They're judges. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless. These are people that are in positions of authority and power and yet when they decide cases or when they make decisions, they do so against people in order to, what? Gain wealth for themselves. Therefore, they have become great and rich. So one, injustice runs rampant around the nation because of you and because of the leaders in your nation. Second, How can I pardon you? This is in uh, chapter 5, 7 to 18, and then verse 19. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. So there may be some real adultery that was there, but probably, definitely, it was a faith adultery. Meaning, he's using that as an illustration for their idolatry. They moved away from it. And when your people say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, As you have forsaken me, that's why I think it's faith idolatry, and served foreign gods in your land, so shall you serve foreigners in the land that is not yours. So the punishment that they're getting is for two two big reasons. You know, Obviously he says that you've forsaken me and you've pursued cisterns that won't hold water, but two big reasons in that is specifically idolatry and injustice. You didn't actually apply my words to court cases. You took money from people and set traps for them, and that's all they were. They were just pawns in your scheme. And then the other is, you have absolutely left me. There's no fear of me in you at all. One breeds the other. So it's injustice and idolatry. These two. Now, Jeremiah is actually given the, the task on a couple of occasions in this book of walking into the temple. That's injustice and idolatry, those past two blanks walking into the temple and preaching a sermon right there in the middle of the temple. Like like a street preacher, essentially. Going right into the temple and just yelling out loud. So you can imagine how well this goes over. All right. The word of the Lord, this is in chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. That's the temple. And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is key. Tell you what's going on right now. These deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. What what does he mean by that? What are those words meant to say to the people? He's saying, don't trust in these deceptive. So we know that these words right here are deceptive. What are those words meant to say? So there's people that are saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And what do the false prophets say? Yeah, they're saying this is the temple of the Lord. And what does that mean? Hey, this is the temple of the Lord. I mean, come on, people. This is the temple of the Lord. What is that? How is that deceiving them? It's giving them a false sense of security. So he tells them, look, if you, if you amend your ways and your deeds, I will let you dwell in this place. Remember, he's in the temple right now. If you amend your ways, I'll let you stay here. Don't trust in the people that say, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're thinking, this brings me some security. God's not going to do anything to his temple, right? Surely not. I mean, as long as we're here, we're his bros. He's not going to do anything to us. This is the temple of the Lord. He wouldn't strike this place. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. So what is God saying? Oh, yes, I will strike this place. I'll remove you right from it. In the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house? which is called by my name, and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations, what are they guilty of? Not repenting is is sure there. What are they doing specifically? In their free time, uh, Sunday through Friday, what do they go doing? Serving all these other gods. And then they come in on on the Sabbath and they're like, hey, we are the Lord's, we worship Yahweh." Like, nothing's wrong? You don't think that God cares about Sunday through Friday, too? Of course He does. So, what they're doing... Oh, oh, let's, let's keep reading. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? You've not heard that before, have you? In your eyes... Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, which I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to, be, did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. You wouldn't destroy this temple, would you? Uh, have you ever been to Shiloh? He says, you ever go there? See what I did to it there? You don't think I will? Watch me. Uh, And now because you have done all these things declares the Lord and when when I spoke to you persistently you did not listen and when I called you you did not answer therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave you and to uh, to your fathers as I did did to Shiloh. I'm going to do the same thing here and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim all the kingdom of the north I did a hundred years ago. I'll cast them out too. So, Judah, or sorry, Jeremiah's temple sermon in chapter 7 basically lays out Judah's syncretistic ways. Syncretism is bringing two religions together. They, they have a syncretistic way. All the while believing that the people's devotion quote-unquote to Yahweh and His presence will make them secure. We got the temple with this, baby. He's not going to do anything to this. By the way, the destruction of the temple that Babylon did is the destruction of the temple that Rome's going to do when they walk in in the 70s. And don't you know, right before they do that, right before Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple, what does he do? He goes into the temple and he cleanses it. And he says, my house is, a, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it right out of Jeremiah, a den of robber. So basically, he's telling first-century Jerusalem, "You've done the same thing that Jeremiah's lot was guilty of, and I'm Jeremiah walking in this place and telling you exactly what you've done. You're just you're guilty along with them." All right. Um, Jeremiah eleven six, and the Lord said to me, "Proclaim these words in the cities of Judah." And in the streets of Jerusalem. So we're getting more in depth in terms of what all they've done. God is basically the first 25 chapters, God just levying these charges against, against Judah. Um, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, What is he saying? Obey my voice. Remember, This is the Mosaic Covenant. Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant. What is God really concerned about right now? His covenant. So not only is there idolatry, not only is there wickedness, not only is there injustice, all of those, the big charge is, all of those are a breach of the covenant. That's the problem. We had a deal, you broke it. Here's how it goes. Uh, again, to the, again the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists amongst the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to, their iniqui- to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. You are guilty of all the things that your forefathers were. They turned back, and so are you turning back. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Remember, he told Jeremiah, my words are true. Though they cry to me, I will not listen. The Lord made it known to me. Uh, This is verse 18. Uh, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew... Then uh, you showed me their deeds, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes. This is Jeremiah talking. Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. What are the people doing now in response to Jeremiah's prophecy? What are they doing? This is Jeremiah talking here. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. Who's there Who is that? The people, the people that he prophesied to. Jeremiah is preaching this prophecy and then he says, and they had these secret plans and the Lord made them known to me and he showed me their deeds. I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. So we're going to kill Jeremiah. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. That his name, that is Jeremiah's name, be remembered no more. But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests, this is Jeremiah speaking again, who tests the hearts and the, and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have, have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. These are the fellow priests, where he's from. Who seek your life and say, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. So the Lord makes evident that his judgment of the people is on two grounds. First, they have broken the covenant with him, as their forefathers had, and second, they plotted to kill Jeremiah, the Lord's messenger. Jeremiah complains about the wicked of the world. But God reiterates that His own brothers are, who are also wicked, and they deserve judgment as well. Now we get to some really weird stuff. Alright, you ready for this? Slow, slow down. There's a lot of material, Shannon. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so far, if we're just... I'll slow, I will take, a, take, a, take a pause. So far, God is levying charge after charge after charge. Remember what I said. When it comes to the prophets, God is a fan of visual illustrations. All right? He gives them all the time to the prophets. Sometimes he calls the prophets to be a visual illustration to everyone else. All right? So now, he, listen to this illustration. All right? This is chapter 13. Thus says the Lord to me Go and buy a linen loincloth, some underwear. I mean, just to put a fine point on it. And put it around your waist, and do not wash it. Do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth, according to the word of the Lord, and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth, remember that's a dirty loincloth, take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of a rock. So I went and hid, hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. After many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the underwear that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was nasty. was spoiled. And it was good for nothing. Now you're going, what in the world? Then the word of the Lord came to me, Thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of men, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a, a, a praise and a glory that they would not listen. So you, people who serve other gods, are like this nasty, good-for-nothing pair of underwear, essentially. What an illustration that is. And I know that's, that, it, it sound, that sounds weird, and, it, and, and maybe even somewhat humorous, and, and maybe you're going, what on earth? Why? It makes a strong point, doesn't it? <laughs> you are worse than a nasty, used under- piece of underwear. That's what you are to me. Wait, wait, this is the same people, remember, three chapters ago, who were standing in the temple going, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. He won't harm us. And now three chapters later, God is going, you're like an old pair of underwear. It's good for nothing but to be thrown out. I mean, it's a strong point that he's making. It's weird, but it's strong. Frequently, the prophets will be told by God uh, to do strange things as an illustration of judgment that is coming. Jeremiah's loincloth demonstrates Judah's uselessness and coming destruction, and how in spite of Jeremiah's appeal they will not change there's nothing that they can do to, to actually change all right now we get a little bit further woe is me my mother that you bore me a man of strife and contention to the whole land I have not lent nor have I borrowed yet all of them curse me this is Jeremiah speaking what is he what is he lamenting here uh, oh sorry this is uh, this is 1510 I believe 1510. Woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and contention to the whole land. I have not lent, nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. What is Jeremiah lamenting? Being born. Oh Lord, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for for me on my persecutors. In forbearance take me not away know that for your sake I bear reproach your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart for I am called by your name O Lord God of hosts I did not sit in the company of revelers nor did I rejoice sounds like Psalm 1 I sat alone because of your hand was your hand was upon me for you had filled me with indignation why is my pain unceasing my wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Look, everybody has, even Jeremiah has a moment where he goes, what, what are you going to do? Remember what God said he was going to do? He said he was going to protect him. What is Jeremiah getting to now? A crisis moment. Do you actually believe, Jeremiah, that, you, that, that you're going to be protected? The Lord said, have I not set you free from their good, for their good? Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble and in the time of distress? He keeps going. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. Now, Jeremiah is going to be hurt. He's going to be beaten. But they're not going to prevail. His word is going to continue. The Lord and Jeremiah go back and forth between God's proclamation of Judah's guilt and condemnation and Jeremiah's prayers for God's mercy on the people. Jeremiah is persecuted and Yahweh responds with protection. All right. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, says arise and go down to the potter's house. So we get, we get two more illustrations where Jeremiah is going to walk in to the potter's house, and he's going to get some vessels of pottery, essentially. Arise, go to the potter's house, and there I will let you, uh, I believe this is uh, 18, is this 1 to 6, I think it is? Uh, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Romans 9. That's where Paul gets it. Doesn't he reserve as the potter the right to do with one vessel what he wants and with another vessel what he wants? Doesn't he as the, as the potter have the right to do that? Yes, he does. You think, Israel is thinking, well, we're his people. He won't do that. And what we're going to find out in the New Testament is, oh, i got a whole lot of people. They're actually a lot from Gentiles too. You don't even know about that. But I'm coming for the whole nation, all the nations. You don't know about them. And there's a remnant of Israel that is my people. And there's a, there's a whole group of Gentiles too. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul's echoing what Jeremiah says here to the New Testament church in Romans 9. Go read it. It's disturbing when you read it. Just be careful. Just be warned when you read it. It's going to be disturbing. But that's what Paul's saying. Well, that's not fair. We're his people. Doesn't he have the right as the potter to do with whatever he wants out of the clay? Yes. Thus says Lord God, go, and this is the second time he goes to the potter's house, go buy a a potter's earthenware flask. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go to the valley of the son of Hinnom, where they used to, that's where they used to accomplish their pagan sacrifices. And, and, and that's this right here, uh, Hinnom, the valley of Hinnom, is uh, Gehenna in the New Testament. It's what Jesus uses for hell, the, the valley of the burning, basically. At the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there these words that I tell you. Um, and so he's going down, and he's using this the potter's vessels uh, as a means to basically uh, tell them this is what the Lord ha- is saying. He's breaking you; he has a right to do with what, whatever he wants. And he's taking this uh, this pottery, and he's just like this pottery; he's going to break you. Uh, now Jeremiah is subsequently beaten for this. This is what happens in in uh, in twenty verses one to three. He's beaten because of that. Uh, he says. Uh, Verse 2, then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper, uh, in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. The next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. <laughs> so Jeremiah is beaten for his, his message. So all, all of this was designed to say was, First of all, here's all the charges that God is bringing against, against Israel. So as we, we read this, the first 25 chapters, Jeremiah going back and forth with the people and with God, and God's levying all the charges that he has against Israel and letting them know what, what's going on. And for that, Jeremiah pays the price. Sometimes he illustrates a point that God is making to the people. Sometimes he tells them directly. Sometimes he's called to preach the sermon in the middle of everybody in the town square. And sometimes he's meant to go to really hard places, and for it, he is persecuted and beaten. The central problem, and so, so then we have to ask, okay, if that's the case, then what do I do with this? I'm in a New Testament era, I'm not, I'm not really, I mean, maybe there's an application to ministers who have a ministry kind of like Jeremiah's, where it's pretty hard or something like that. But that, by and large, that is not what we're, we're looking at as New Testament people. We have to remember that the central problem Jeremiah is prophesying against in Jerusalem and Judah is not only the people's unrighteousness, but that the shepherds and the prophets who lead the people to unrighteousness, they deny that God will judge them. So his uh, the one problem is that all the people who are the religious elites are misleading the people. That's a huge problem. They're telling them there's no problem. Listen to what he says here. This is in 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of My pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for My people, you have scattered My flock and you have driven them away. What, is, what are they guilty of specifically? What have the shepherds done? He says they have driven them away. How did they drive them away? Deceit. Explain more. Uh, Yes. You were supposed to lead them to me and you led them away from me to other gods. And you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declared the Lord. This is what the shepherd is supposed to do. He's supposed to direct them to the Lord, through His Word. This is where the New Testament gets the idea of shepherd and pastor, is that they're unfolding the Word, pointing them to Jesus. And you've done precisely the opposite. You've pointed them the opposite direction and taken them to false gods. Concerning the prophets... So it's not just the shepherds, it's the prophets. My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of His holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, because of the curse that's the curse of the fall, the land mourns. Remember that sounds like Genesis 3? The land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to me like slippery paths in the darkness into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions in their own, of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord." This is the, the problem. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. They don't preach the gospel. That's essentially what he's saying there. God's solution to this though, and this is where we begin to see where this is fulfilled. In, in Jeremiah's day, it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. The people are taken off into captivity. All the things that Jeremiah says comes to fruition. It is fulfilled. However, it's not fully fulfilled. There's still more. Listen to what he says. He says, God's solution to this problem in Judah is not merely punishment, but restoration through a promised seed who will restore his people to their original created purpose. Remember, he, he said the land is under a curse. Listen to what he says here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Do we know who that is? He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, the things that they were guilty of not doing. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We see this not only there, but we see this in Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We see this also in uh, verse 10 of chapter 11 of Isaiah. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Uh, and, And then this is in Revelation. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. It's under the kingdom of Christ that this is going to be corrected. So when we're looking at Jeremiah, we're not only seeing, okay, that's fulfilled and then being taken off into into Jerusalem, but that's only the first part of it. The next part of it is there's restoration coming. And when is that restoration coming? When the root of David, when the true branch actually takes his throne. That's what Jesus says to his disciples at the end of Matthew when he's raised from the dead. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. I'm on the throne now. I've taken the throne. This is all under my kingdom now. So go make disciples. Um, He says, listen to what he says here. Then I will gather. um, Make sure I know where I'm at. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound like Genesis? So he's restoring what was broken in the fall. I will be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them. He's undoing what was done. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear. They shall fear me no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall uh, any be missing. Declares the Lord. I'm going to take care of my sheep again. And when's that going to happen? Under the throne of uh, under the reign of Jesus. So essentially, God's judgment will be severe on Judah, and it's going to be fulfilled in Jeremiah. We're going to see, but. And he's going to send them into Babylon for 70 years. But John, in Revelation, sees this judgment as a prototype for the judgment to come that's executed on Babylon or the unbelieving world. It says, Moreover, I will banish them uh, the, the, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the lamp. This whole land shall become ruin, a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But then John in Revelation says, uh, he says, so, so will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman, uh, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. John is pulling the images from Jeremiah here into Revelation. Finally, um, we are specifically referred to, what do we do with this? How do we apply it? Well, the verse that I just read of Jeremiah 23, 3 to 4, specifically here, is referring to us. We're to care for God's people by pointing them to Jesus. This is precisely what Judah is condemned for. They point people away from God. The shepherds of the people have led them astray, the prophets have led them astray. So, what is it that we're to do under the reign of the king? Well, he says, I'm going to appoint shepherds. Are you a Christian? Are you under the banner of Christ? Are you claiming the name of Christ? Congratulations! You're to go point people to Jesus. Not lead them away. He's defining for us what it looks like under the Messiah's ministry. And what does it look like? Shepherds are appointed over the people once more. And what are they to do? Open the Word and teach. In the words of Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. There's no more fitting illustration of that even to, even now as we sit here than Cal Brooks. We talked about at length before this how many people she discipled. That's the role of a Christian as a shepherd of people to point them to Christ. Questions? Quickly. A lot of material. I'll cut it shorter next time. I probably won't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. Sometimes daunting, sometimes hard, sometimes difficult to unpack. We pray that you would be with us in applying it to us. As we read the words of Jeremiah, may we not be found guilty of the same sins of your people so long ago. We know it's a temptation of ours to hew out cisterns that won't hold water, and to forsake you the fountain of living water. But we pray that your spirit would keep us, would keep us faithful, that tomorrow would wake us up as Christians, desiring to obey your word and teach others, shepherd them, guide them, lead them, disciple them as followers of Christ. Make us into that kind of people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.